All right, here we go. It's almost like you guys like each other or something. I hate to break up conversations, I really do. But uh, we are going to move on just a bit. We're, this is our last uh, Sunday of the season of the writings. We're, last, we're finishing up 2 Peter, the series on First and Second Peter. We finished up the lectionary, as Jake has said. Um, and today, we're, we're getting the final words of Peter's final words to the people all spread out through Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey, mostly Gentiles, and he's been reminding them of the truth that they know, but he's just been saying, during, during these difficult times, this is what you have to cling to. You have to know it more than just in your head. It has to be a, a part of who you are. It has to be a relational knowing of God and of his truth. And today he wraps up this second letter, and before he closes, he, he seeks to address something that, believe it or not, we ask the same question, right? Uh, everybody wrestles with this in their own spiritual journey. Why is God taking so long to do things? If God could come and make all things new, if he could end suffering, if he can make uh, <coughs> excuse me, a new heaven and a new earth, why is it taking so long? Have you ever felt that way? Why does he allow such suffering and difficulty to continue even in the lives of those that he says he loves? That's, that's a huge question. It's probably the one I get more than any other question. And so Peter's going to address it a bit in, in 2 Peter chapter 3 as he closes out this second letter. I'll read it to you, and yes, I still need these. I haven't been miraculously healed during the week. I do think somebody comes in and shrinks the text on this Bible every week, just a little bit. Anyway. 2 Peter 3, I'll read the whole chapter. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. And since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you're already looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation 
just as our dear brother Paul also, also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, duh, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you've been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of, of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Peter says, Right, right away at the beginning of this wrap-up, why he's written. He said, I, I've written both of these letters to you so that you may be, his word, stimulated to whole, wholesome thinking. Now, those are actually the translation of his words. But stimulated to, toward wholesome thinking. He has a desire to stimulate, to get their thinking moving in a wholesome way. Now, we think of wholesome as like pure and, and like, like wholesome bread. We, we think of it as, as, as kind of pure the reality there, it's, it's more like unmixed and undistorted and focused. It's a, it's a Greek word that carries this idea of pure and clear and unified, like wholesome, made into a whole, that your thinking would be clear and you would know what, what's true. It was used, this Greek word was used of, of pure metals that didn't have any, any um, impurities in them, that were strong and clear and focused and ready to do the job. And he says this kind of wholesome thinking that flows out of Scripture. It's thinking that flows out of Scripture. That's the way it works. Notice that he references what we see now as the Old Testament. He says in, in the beginning, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets. That's the Old Testament he's talking about. And then he moves on to what we see as the New Testament and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. It's clear that, that what he wants you to know is this, this Scripture that we hold today is the way you stimulate yourself to wholesome thinking, to pure and clear thinking. He wants us to bathe our lives and our minds in Scripture. Now, I use that word bathe very intentionally because I think sometimes we've misunderstood what it means to interact with Scripture, to read Scripture, to study Scripture. I've been reading a, a historian as a part of my studies. His name is Ivan Illich. And he wrote a book called In the Vineyard of the Text. And in this book, he writes about a shift. He was, he's a specialist in the 1200s, which everybody wants to know everything about the 1200s, right? I'm glad we've got guys like him because he can learn things and tell us, and I don't have to learn them. But, but one thing he says that happened in the 1200s, he calls it a shift from monastic reading to scholastic reading. He said before this time, when people read, he's talking specifically about Scripture, when they read Scripture, not, people didn't have copies of it, uh, and, and they would read it out loud, they would read it multiple times, and people would go away mumbling it to themselves, reading it out, hearing for the ears. It was a vocal reading. But he said what happened was in, in the 1200s and the beginning of the 1300s, we moved more toward a scholastic reading of the text when things were put into books. They were written down, they were quantified, and all of a sudden scholars took over. We understand what this is. Knowledge moved from something that you reflected on as you went about your day to something that the experts managed and controlled, to something that you possessed. It was a shift. Uh, I think he would say, were he still alive, that we're undergoing the same kind of shift as we move from books to, to digital media and images. The same kind of thing is happening. But, but what's interesting in his reading, and I've told you all this, you're like, what are you talking about, Jeff? 
What's interesting, he references, and I, I wasn't, I'm not an English major, but there's a thing called the Oxford English Dictionary, which not only tells you what words mean, it tells you what words used to mean in the English language. Did you guys know that? I didn't know that. The Oxford, yeah, some of, some of you know that. But the Oxford English Dictionary, before, say, in the 1500s, the definition for the word study was this. You ready? Affection, friendliness, devotion to another's welfare, partisan sympathy, desire, inclination, pleasure, or interest felt in something. What, what we've done now, now study, that's not study today, is it? Study then was, was we're going to take this, we're, we, it's, it's a relational word. It was caring. It was, and, and I think sometimes we've moved from interacting with the text in a relationship to just treating it as words on a page that we master instead of being mastered by the text itself. And so one of the things I want you to realize, as, as he says, I want you to, to bathe your lives in the text. Those are my words reflecting on his words. But it, it's, it's not just, under, not just reading scripture. It's actually engaging in a relationship with it. It's a different way of reading. And I think we've lost some of that in our society. We're trying to go back to that. Where we, I, I always tell people, less is more. Read a small chunk and, and meditate it on all day, right? That's one of the reasons, like I know some people read the Bible in a year. I read the Bible in a year and I was just tired. I was so happy to be done at the end because it was so much to read it in a year, right? And, and we spread it over four years. Less is more. Taking time to, to sit with the text and let it impact you. Uh, he also says, I, I, Peter says, I want, in verse 2, I want you to recall. That word recall is also translated recollect, recollect, we say. But I like to put the emphasis different. Re what he's talking about here is this act of going throughout your day and pulling these things, recollecting these truths, these things that you know, and gathering them and holding them both in your head and in your heart to bathe our lives in Scripture. We need that. One of the things I've appreciated so much as I learn more about First Nations culture is, is their way of passing wisdom and knowledge is very different in that it's, it's, it's elders sitting with, with younger people and telling stories and telling them. I, I read one lady was saying, you know, he passed on to me the wisdom of the river. And I thought that's a very different than saying, read this book about the river. There's a relational knowing of what, what's... And, and what we're doing is we're trying to interact with Scripture not as something that we conquer, something that we memorize. You know, they say Nikita Khrushchev could, could recite the entire New Testament, but it didn't really affect his life that much. That's, that's one type of reading and studying. But a, a, another type of reading and studying is this, these, these bits where it actually permeates your life. We need this scriptural foundation it's living with the text. It's the same as we've talked about the knowledge of God. It's not knowing about him as much as it is. It involves knowing about him, but it's a relational knowing. And we live in, in, in the same way with the text, and, and we need to do it. He says that that is important despite those who think otherwise. See, he goes on in verse 3 and 4. There will come those who disagree. It's important that you guys remember this, the, the teaching of the prophets. It's important that you you hear the words that the Lord spoke to the apostles and have been passed on. It's important because there are, there are scoffers that are coming scoffing. They're mocking these things, following their own evil desires. It's going to happen, he says. Not everyone is going to agree. And Peter started this whole uh, first letter reminding us, you know, you've been given this living hope. You've been born into this living hope, but not everybody is going to hold to that. People are going to challenge that. 
And it's really important for you to know the truth. And then he, he, he gives a relevant example of, of people that are challenging. You know, he says in verse 4, where is this coming that Jesus promised? And then they said, nothing changes. Everything goes on the way it has Ever since our ancestors, nothing's changed. All the things stay the same. And he gives this uh, little example you might have heard of it called the flood, right? He says, well, that's not necessarily true, right? There was this period of time and the, the earth was created by water, but it was deluged and destroyed by water. Again, that things have not just continued. And he says, in the same way, the end will come and there'll be this purification by fire. This is what he's, where he's drawing from this Old Testament text to remind them of the truth. And this coming, he says, will happen even if it doesn't feel that way. And then he goes into talking about the reasons for the waiting. Peter says, I mean, I love this because the why question, like I said at the first, is the biggest question I get. Why? Why? God could fix that. Why would he not? And so Peter goes on to talk about the reasons why God seems to be acting so slow. It's a constant theme in the Bible, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, the psalmist cries out. In the prophets, in Isaiah 64, he says, Oh God, if you would just rip open the heavens and come down. Why, did, why are you so slow? We want it to happen. And Peter addresses our desire for God to do something. I don't know what situation you're saying to God. How long? How long? But Peter addresses this, and, and he does it. He starts by reflecting on God and time. In verse 8, he talks about the way God exists relative to time and that it's very different than we do. He says in, in, in uh, verse 8. Now, see, I've got to read without my glasses. That's the hard part. Ta-da. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Now, let me be honest. Some people have seen this. This is that master key that unlocks all the prophecies. Oh, if he's talking about a day, then that's a thousand years. But I, I don't think it's that simple. And the reason is, I think what Peter is saying is that God exists outside of time. He's not controlled by time. It's kind of like me and you when we, we watch a movie or we read a book. There's a time frame in the book, and we're outside of that. It's not impact. We go about our day and do our thing our way. There's another time frame there. Well, when God looks at creation and humanity, he's outside of time. And when we just use this as the prophetic key to say, oh, well, that must mean a thousand years. That must mean what we're doing is putting him back into time. We're not leaving him outside. I think Peter's point is time is really irrelevant to God. And he says, uh, he says, when we do, all we can do when we look at things is we think of things temporally. We think of today and tomorrow, and that, that's how our lives are structured, because we live in time. But God's not like that. And then you get to what he's saying in verse 9. He's not slow in keeping his promise. He's patient. He's patient because he's not, it's not like he's dragging his feet through time. He's seeing the whole thing from the beginning to the end from outside. And he says God's patience is a sign of love. It says he doesn't want anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. So that's why he's waiting. He's patient. He wants people to come to him. He's, he's willing to move what appears from our perspective very slowly. Would anyone say he's willing to move very slowly? People for hundreds of years have said it's moving slowly. But he's willing to do that so that others can come to know him. And this is, I think, 
this one truth enough alone, if we just sat with it for a bit, it's, it's really profound. He's, he's, he's unveiling the heart of God. God wants people to come to repentance. He doesn't want people to perish. That's the heart of God. And I, I think the question for us is, how many of us operate that from that as our default position? That God wants people to come to him. And he's willing to wait. Even those who, who don't want to come, or even those who we might not want to come, he wants them to come. His orientation toward people, God's primary orientation to them, this doesn't mean there won't be judgment, there won't be elimination of evil and purging of evil. The text talks about that. But God's primary orientation to people is that he's willing to be patient so that they will come, because he doesn't want them to perish. And if that's what we truly believe, then that should be the, the basic orientation of our life, that we want people to come to know God. And we're willing to wait and pray and be patient and forgive and offer grace. There's a book that came out several years ago by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons called Unchristian. And what they did was they interviewed uh, 440 non-evangelicals, people who said, I'm not Christian, I'm not evangelical. And what they did was they said, I want you to just use words and describe the, the evangelical Christians that you know. And of these 440 people, there were six categories, the top six, I think there's six, yes, the top six categories that they would use to describe the church. Now, before I go into this, let me tell you, I know our job is not to just make people happy, right? I, I get that when the church does what the church does, it's going to upset people. But my question is, if God's primary orientation toward people is patience so that they will come to him, why is the church perceived radically differently? First, they said they're hypocritical. And when asked to expound upon that, they said they, they say one thing and they do another. They're second. They're too focused on getting converts. Now, we may say that's not a bad thing. But what, when they tried to expound on that, they said they view people as targets. Hmm. The third thing, they're anti-homosexual. What do you mean? Well, they're bigoted, they said. The fourth, they're sheltered, meaning old-fashioned, boring, and out of touch with reality. Fifth thing, they're too political. Uh, judge, uh, motivated by a conservative political agenda. I, uh, there we go, too political. Motivated by a conservative political agenda. And the last one, they're judgmental. They're quick to judge others. Now, I don't want to stick a knife in our hearts too much, because I get it. The way we live is radically different, and the world isn't going to understand the way we should live if we're following Jesus. But I find it ironic that Peter says the heartbeat of God is that he will wait hundreds and hundreds of years. He will wait outside of time for people to come to him because he doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. <clears throat> and when non-Christians are asked about the church, these are the six categories they list. And I'm afraid it's because our orientation is not that way. Our orientation is more toward being right or being correct or, or winning the argument. We, we, we need to take that to heart. If God is this patient and wants no one to perish, why shouldn't we reflect that same thing to the world? And I think part of it comes back to the, the, the way we look at reading and the way we look at knowing or the way we look at study. It, it's become about facts and knowledge and, and a list of things instead of a relationship that flows the divine life where the fruits of the Spirit flow out of. So we try to correct people and get them right 
So then come to Jesus instead of actually offering grace and loving them in a way so that they can know him, not about him, but actually know him. The goal has often become bringing people over to our way of thinking instead of introducing them to the God who is so concerned about them that he'll wait literally hundreds and thousands of years for them to come into relationship. Now, it's important that we get this. I, I'm not, I don't want to minimize the judgment aspect because it's there, right? God will deal with evil. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but, but, but evil will be purified. Because Peter says, but the end will come. In verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. He said it in his first letter too. Jake, Jake preached that sermon from 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded, wholesome thinking, and self-controlled so that you can pray. Now, depending, depending on your version, this, this verse 10 may end up with, it sounds like the earth is going to be destroyed by fire. The reason that is, this word that I read is laid bare. At the end of verse 10, it's hurisco. It's a Greek word. It literally means to find. The earth will be found. And so people thought, oh, that must have been, and there have been a, a few, as people have translated over or passed down copies throughout the, the centuries, there have been a few people that have made little comments or maybe have changed a word or two, and we, there's, there's what they call a textual variant. But, but the most accurate texts have that word, heurisco, find. It's the same word that in Matthew 1, when it talks about Mary, that, that she was, the Holy Spirit came upon her, and she was found, heurisco, with child. It was discovered that she was pregnant. Or Jesus, in, in his parable uh, about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, and when a man found it, hurisco, that same Greek word, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought the field. And, and even in the garden the night before, Jesus asked three of the disciples to pray. He goes away to pray, and then he returns. It says he returned to the disciples, and he found, he discovered, he hiriscoed them sleeping. So what does that mean, that the earth will be found? I think the, the translation is better there, laid bare. It will be discovered. It will be exposed. In other words, all that's really not real will be burned with fire. It will be destroyed. All that's not true, all that's not good, all evil, all sin, all brokenness, all death, all those things will be, will be purified. These, these works or deeds that have been done uh, from evil motivations, these people that are deceiving others, these people that are, are hurting others, that's all going to be taken away in this new creation. There's a moment in the, the coming, this day of the Lord, when the truth about everything will be, will be aware, it'll be open to see for everybody. What's, what's good and what's evil, and evil will be wiped away. And Peter says when we get this, we should live in light of what's coming. That starts with verse 11, right? Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. He says if, if, you, if you grasp this bigger picture of what I'm saying here about how the, the day will come, God is patient, but the day will come when evil will be wiped away, destroyed, and all that's left to, that remain will, will be pure. If that's the case, then what do you want to give your lives to? to? To the pure, to the good, to the holy. He says, he says what, what's going to happen is we're going to get a new heaven and a new earth in verse 13. And to me, this is one of the most exciting things to me that I think I've learned in my Christian life. 
if you read the scriptures, now maybe I'm going to upset some of your apple carts, but, but we kind of had this, I grew up with this idea that we're just leaving this place behind. It's all going to be gone and we're leaving. But what you actually see, I think, at the end of Revelation is God coming down, purifying evil and bringing heaven and earth together as one as they were in the beginning. And everything is made new. That's Revelation 21. Behold, I make all things new. He doesn't say I make all new things. I make all things new. He, he make, remakes creation in the way that it was supposed to be originally. See, we're, we're not leaving this earth to sit on a cloud. I think he's returning and purifying and making us new and everything new. And since that's where we're heading, he says we should make every effort to work with God. That's verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. It's, it's a bookend of the letter. Remember what he started out by saying in, in chapter 1, verses 5 to 7? For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance. Why? Now it becomes clear. Why do we want, why do we want to live that way? Because those are the only things that will last Living a life where you're drawing from divine life and reflecting Jesus to the world, that's the kind of thing that's not going to get wiped away when judgment comes. Those are the things that reflect the nature of God into the world. Those acts, those, those, those ways of living. So what, that's why he says, as you look forward to the day of God and speed his coming. The day of the Lord and speed his coming. Because what we're doing as we live and draw from that divine life and live pursuing those things, we're actually beginning the recreation of creation that we live in. We're making the world, starting to make it a place where he will come and make all things new. And that's our calling. The patience of God enables us to live out that new creation, to start, that's what the kingdom of God is. It's spreading through the world, and it's an example of what the world looks like when Jesus is on the throne, when you forgive your neighbor, when you love someone, when you serve, people get a picture of what the new heaven and the new earth will look like. And it's, it's captivating because our world looks so broken and so different. And the interesting thing here at the end, he says this patience of God, while we long for the return, it gives us time to work out our salvation. Now, look at verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote with you with the wisdom God gave him. Verse 15, our Lord's patience means salvation. Now, we've all, I, I've always thought, well, not always, because I don't think that way now, he's only talking about God's limiting his judgment so that people can come into a relationship with Jesus. I think that's true. Yes, he is. But the reason he references Paul here is because Paul had this big picture of salvation that was a point when we came to know Jesus, but it was also this process that we were learning and growing and being shaped into the image of Jesus. We miss a part of what Peter's saying when we only think of salvation as this moment where you say the prayer and you come into a relationship with God. Yes, that's a part, that's the beginning, but it's the beginning. And he refers to Paul. Well, what does Paul say? If you go over to Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, he's writing to believers here, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. See, Peter's not just saying God's patient so that people can come into a relationship with him. 
He's saying God is actually patient so that you can grow into a relationship with him. Once you come to know him, once, once you're made new and the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, your salvation continues as you grow to reflect Jesus more and more. That's what it looks like. And that's why he says even in this patience, the Lord's patience allows that salvation to grow. and It allows us to work with him, to reflect him to the world all around us. To see salvation as a point, yes, there was a day, I was seven years old, I was laying in my bed, and the preacher had preached, and I did not want to go to hell. And I called my mom and my dad in, and I said, I don't, I'm scared to go to hell. Fire insurance was all I had at that point. But they, they were great parents, they prayed with me, and at that moment, was I saved? You bet I was, because I had cried out to, to Jesus and asked for forgiveness, and he had saved me. But was that the end of the job? No. He's, he's conforming me into his image, which little by little is actually saving me more and more and more. It's setting me free from these habits, from the flesh, that, these, these worldly desires. Little by little, that's what the calling is. And, he, and Peter says his patience is good for that too. In, in that moment where you're thinking, what, what are you doing, God? Why are you waiting? What Peter says is he's shaping you too in that moment. He's helping you live out your salvation. He's helping it grow in you so that you're more like Christ. If salvation is just knowing the truth that Jesus died for me, if that's all it is, it can happen in a moment. But what, what Peter's saying, and I think what Paul says with this word salvation, is it's, it's where you come to Jesus and then he begins to renew your life. Eventually it'll be completed when he returns. But it's being transformed by a relationship which we go back to that very beginning, right, where he says it's through our knowledge of him that we have in these great and precious promises that we can participate in the divine nature. We can share in that life of God. So we're saved and we're being saved, both at the same time. And then we come to the final words of Peter's final This I actually correct, tried to correct this in my notes this morning because I said, oh, you're redundant on final words, and then I realized I want to be redundant. We come to the final words of Peter's final words because this book is the last one we have from him. <coughs> and he gives his readers three pieces of advice. Three phrases, and we'll wrap up there. First, he says, be on your guard, in verse 17. Be on your guard. It literally means to watch, to observe, to be diligent about your own life. To, to, to reflect. You know, far too often we're moving so fast that we don't even reflect on the state of our spiritual life. We don't even think about our relationship with God. We're just too busy. And, and that's when, when, we, when we can get into trouble. He says, be on your guard. He also said this toward the end of his first letter in 1 Peter 5. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. The challenges to us to get off the track are real. So he says, be on your guard. He uses the same word with Timothy and, uh, that Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. In other words, recollect those truths. Grab them, hold them here, guard them, keep them precious. Be diligent in that. To work with God for things that last. One of the ways we do that, one of the ways that we can be on our guard is by not being alone. Not being alone. Alone. Oh, I wasn't going to tell the story. Can I tell you a story? Yeah? Okay, I'm going to tell you the story because it's such a fun story. Well, it's fun now. 
Wednesday night, uh, our dog was going out in the backyard to do his nightly business, and Angela had this stinking suspicion that I should go out on the back porch and watch him because she'd heard him bark earlier and wondered if there might be an animal out there. Well, our dog went out, and as soon as he went out, he picked up a scent in our backyard, and he ran across, and he ran back by one shed, and then he got to the second shed toward the back, and I heard the biggest commotion I've ever heard in my life. And our dog decided to take on a raccoon twice his size. I'm not kidding. And it was, it, you, do you remember um, the Tasmanian devil in the cartoons? <laughs> That's what it was. It was dog fur and raccoon, and the raccoon literally was twice as big as Chester, our little dog. And he, he had him wrapped around, and I, being the hero, I didn't think, right? I'm in my jeans and my socks, and I'm running across our backyard through the grass, across the little gravel thing there, and I, I, I'm like yelling at the raccoon like he understands English, and then like he'll obey me, I don't know what's going on. And I keep trying to knock him off, and I can't, right? And so I, I, one time when I grab, I get Chester's back leg, and I, so I, I've got another back leg, and I try to swing the raccoon off his back because he's just he's latched onto him, and he doesn't swing off. So Reed and Cindy's shed is right there. So then I just went, back right against the shed, and that stunned the raccoon enough to knock him off. And I put Chester down, and he ran. Now, let me just tell you this. Chester is, I think, alive today because my wife said, go out in the backyard, and Chester was not alone, Right? Chester was, he, he was like we are. I'll get him. I'll get that raccoon that's twice my size and can kill me, right? He's not got any sense. But he had somebody that had a little sense with him that was able to run in and, and hopefully save him. And he's, he's fine now. He's doing okay. No, thank you for asking. Uh, he's, he's doing all right. I actually like the little dog, and I don't like that raccoon very much um, at all. But the point is, one of the ways we be on our guard is by not being alone. That's one of the reasons we're doing this social and distancing, trying to reconnect, because we need, we need each other. We need to share our lives with each other, and we're not good at it. People in general in North America are not good at sharing life, so we're going to try for the next... I encourage you to sign up. Be on your guards, the first one. Thanks for letting me tell that story. It only took two minutes. I'm very impressed with myself. Be on your guard. The second is grow in grace, verse 18. He says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there's two sides to growing in grace. One is that we need to grow in our ability to let grace come to us, right? We need to receive it. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. You've got to, set, you've got to receive grace. That's how we grow in it to trust that we can't mess up what God's doing, to let his forgiveness penetrate to our very broken places. You have to receive it. It's a challenge for us because we like to be in control. But the other side of it is as we grow in our ability to receive the grace of God, we become a channel of that grace to other people. In Hebrews, the writer writes, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And I love this. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Once you've received the grace, see to it that nobody else misses it, that your heart is like God's, that you want to be patient long enough for people to come to repentance. Be on your guard. Keep the truth clear in your mind. Number two, grow in grace. And number three, grow in knowledge. Verse 18 again. And we've talked about this a bit. This is not just knowing about God. This is not just being able to recite the text. This is not having your theology you know, all systematically fit together. All that's important. But what he's saying here 
as if what he said back in 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge, through our knowing, through our relational connection. Remember, it's a different Greek word. It's epigenosko. It means knowledge upon. It's, it's a relational angle. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Our, our knowing, our knowledge of God is the key to our living. In Paul, Paul writes in Colossians 2, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. Now listen to this. So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What a statement. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. What he's saying to the Colossians there is everything that you need to know every bit of wisdom you will ever need is in Jesus. And if you know him, as you know him, that divine life flows through you and teaches you in a way deeper way than you're just learning it from a piece of paper, than you're just memorizing facts. Jesus is the key to it all. So be on your guard, be diligent, care about it, allow grace to come to you and then extend grace to others and give yourself fully to knowing Jesus, which is exactly what we'll do at this table. Let's, let's pray. God, we thank you for the fact that we have been given a gift from you, a gift of grace, mercy. We thank you for your patience, especially as it flowed to us. And God, we, we want to um, we receive that and receive it fully, to actually let your grace forgive us of all those things we're ashamed of. And God, help us today as we come to this table, as we prepare our hearts to, to, to remember your death, your, your broken body, your poured out blood. As we come here and remember that, help us to, to take in that grace and to extend it to others. Help us to know you, not just about you, but to actually know you in a relationship on a day-to-day -day basis. Help your divine life to flow from the Trinity into us and into the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's kind of fun. I love how he ends it. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but if you've, I think of times a lot when I was a kid, but also other times where I've done something, I've offended somebody, I've hurt somebody, I've done something wrong, I've lied to my parents when I was a kid, and you, you feel that heaviness, right? And, and then you come clean, and you receive forgiveness, and there's, you're drawn into a deeper relationship. And, and I, I guess what I, my prayer for you this week is to realize, if you grow in the grace of God, you will grow in the knowledge of God. If you come to the table and realize that the, the, the body and blood of Jesus covers every sin you've ever done, that, that you're not separated from him, but you're welcomed to his table, if you receive that grace, you'll grow in the knowledge, not just knowledge about him, but relational, knowing him in a deeper and more profound way. And if you do that, as you go out, the world will see who he is. That's my prayer for you this week. Amen.